Thank you. Go ahead and be seated. Uh, welcome. Good to see you all. Uh, thanks for live streaming and tuning in from home. Uh, especially glad to see everybody and to be able to have people to connect with us uh, over live stream uh, given the events of last week. Um, it's 2020 so far, right? And when we saw the hurricane developing in the Gulf, we were like, sure, what's a, what's a hurricane to add to the list of this year? <clears throat> Quite some trials uh, we've been experiencing. Um, but in all that, and in all seriousness, it is a season for us right now, I think, to reflect on the gratitude and the gratefulness we have. I mean, here we are, a meeting in a building that sustained uh, no damage. Immediately after the storm, I came over, and there was a little water in the cafe, so I cleaned that up. Um, but we have power. We have uh, AC. Uh, some of you may not have that still at home, and this is kind of like a respite uh, and a rest for us to come and to gather together in this kind of comfort. I mean, what a blessing, things that we overlook so often, um, but we ought to be very grateful for, and I'm especially very grateful for all of the first responders and for the utility company, men and women that have been working around the clock to restore power and utilities. Again, things we take for granted are these small things in our world that become so important to us when they're taken away from us. So very grateful uh, in this season. Um, in Mobile, uh, we dodged the bulk of the storm in Fairhope and in Eastern Shore, Silver Hill, uh, Gulf Shores, Orange Beach, that area. Not so much. They, they took the brunt of it. If you know, Mars Hill is one church with two campuses. We have this campus here and another campus over in Fairhope. Um, they did not do so well. They're not meeting today. Most families over there are still without power. Uh, one family has 30 trees that have been dropped or fell on their property. Um, people are without uh, water. Um, so it's a very different situation over there. The building sustained damage, both roof damage and flooding damage that came as a result of the roof damage. Uh, so they've taken a week off. And we decided as a staff, uh, really to do two things. One, for the teaching schedule to pause. So we're going to not look through, or we're not going to teach on John. Uh, I'll teach a standalone sermon this morning. Um, but second, and as Mark Rudd, who's our administrative pastor, will announce at the end of the service, and we're going to find ways that those of us who have recovered in Mobile uh, and can help, how can we help families over in Fairhope? I think at least 15 families are, are needing just some hands to help them clear uh, the debris and property from their house. Uh, so you'll find out if you'd like to do that, uh, how we're going to go about doing that this coming week. So um, we're not going to go through John, but instead uh, we're going to go uh, through a couple of verses in Ephesians. And there's a little background story to why we're doing this. Uh, when I first came on Mars Hill, my two primary areas of responsibility was to kind of put structure to community. We hadn't had that yet. And then secondly, to take stewardship of uh, the youth from Mark Powell, who was doing youth at the time, to free him up to do family ministry. I wanted to preach and teach. I knew that was on the horizon. That was the anticipation, the expectation. But the elders and Jack thought it would be wise. Let's just give him a year in different areas of ministry uh, before we begin to give him opportunities to preach and teach. Well, that plan changed about three months into it when Jack unexpectedly could not finished the series on Ephesians, the last few verses. And so he asked me, would you be interested in preaching uh, this coming Sunday in Ephesians? And 
of course, I jumped at it like, yes, I would love to do that. Uh, what are the verses? And he says, well, we're going to have you preach Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. Ephesians 6, 21, 22. I said, that's awesome. Until I got home and I read Ephesians 6, 21 through 22. Let me read this passage for you. So that you, this is Paul, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I was like, where's the theology in it? <laughs> how am I supposed to preach essentially Paul signing off? Right? This is Paul going, sincerely, Apostle Paul, P.S., bring my coat. It gets cold in Rome sometimes. Where in the world am I going to come up with a sermon from this? And the Lord taught me something that uh, I think really blossomed uh, my a deep appreciation for um, the inspiration of the Word of God. Uh, and gifted me uh, this word to teach that I've not only taught, you know, years ago when I was first starting out, but I've had the opportunity to preach this sermon that I'm about to preach uh, in Israel. I've preached it in Haiti. I've preached it to other churches. And so it's, it's become a really precious message uh, that I'm really stoked to share with you guys because probably very small minority in this room or people that are tuning in from home would have even remembered uh, me preaching this, they probably thought, like, who is this guy? Like, years ago, like, who gave him the Bible in the pulpit? Uh, we're making mistakes in our staff hirings, I see, right? So I'm, I'm really excited to visit this passage again, which basically, you know, at surface value, or at face value, seems like Paul's just signing off the letter. And so the objection you might have, and it was the objection I had, was, how am I going to pull any instruction, any encouragement, uh, anything out of this text except for this is how Paul finished letters, the end. And the thing that I became convicted by when I was preparing this sermon was Paul's words elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3.16 where he tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. And uh, the question the Holy Spirit asked me was, do you believe that that's true? See, up until that point, I believed that that was true about the theological passages. I believed that that was true about the, the narrative and how we draw, um, you know, we learn about God's salvific activity in the history of redemption. I thought that was true about Jesus' teaching. I thought it was true about John's revelation. I thought it was true about parables. I thought it was true about Psalms, wisdom literature. But I'll admit, there were these tiny crevices and these, these little bits around Scripture where, I mean, that, that's the throwaway stuff, right? So, I mean, that might be inspired. It might not, but it's irrelevant, isn't it? And what the Holy Spirit said was, look, either all Scripture is breathed out by God or it's not. And if it is, then that means even the things you think are throwaway are still important. That when you view all Scripture as inspired, it speaks to you in every part like nothing else can. There's no wasted ink. There's no careless word. There's no thoughtless statement. All Scripture is inspired by God, even 
Sincerely, Paul. So what can the Lord teach us from these two verses? I think he can teach us a really important lesson about faithfulness and stewardship and our role as believers in his kingdom through this fella, whose name you probably just squinted at and thought it was an awkward name, Tychicus. That's how it's pronounced, I think. If not, I'll just keep pronouncing it like that, and you'll prove me wrong later, but it'll be too late because the sermon will be over. But Tychicus had a really important role to play, as we see in these last two verses. I mean, in our reading of the New Testament, Tychicus is not really well known. He's like the footnote of an extra of a supporting role in a play. Who's, who's heard of Tychicus uh, before we just read his name? It's like... Very few people in that poll. Like, that's it. Like, nobody's heard of Tychicus. Um, but in God's reading, in his telling of this story, Tychicus is kind of a small-time big deal. He was probably a Gentile. He was from modern-day Turkey. So it meant he was a Greek or, or Gentile. And for that we know he is kind of a traitor to his own Greco-Roman roots. So instead of hailing Caesar as Lord, now he's going around declaring this Messiah from Palestine is Lord. But he, as a Gentile or a Greek, also has kind of the disadvantage of being a Christian within the Jewish Christian community because a lot of Jewish Christians in the first century struggled with Gentiles coming into the community. We see this question over whether or not Timothy who was a Gentile, should become circumcised. And so we know Tychicus probably dealt with those types of issues as well. So he doesn't quite fit in anywhere. We know from the New Testament that Tychicus was a friend and advocate of a guy named Onesimus. Who's ever heard of Onesimus from before? A few of us. He is the slave spoken of in Philemon. And because Tychicus is an advocate and a friend of Onesimus, I think this tells us a little bit about Tychicus's heart. It, is, it, it goes out for those who are oppressed. It goes out for those who are uh, enslaved. It goes out for those who uh, are, are experiencing injustice, and so his, his heart is oriented towards righteousness and goodness and justice. Um, and in Crete, in an Ephesus, we learn, Tychicus plays a support role for the teaching and the preaching ministries of Timothy and Titus, and those names we're familiar with. So we know that he was an encourager in the gospel. He was, he was a supporter in the gospel. And so it's no surprise that toward the end of Paul's life, Tychicus being with Paul, Tychicus is supporting and encouraging Paul. Paul knew that his time was coming to an end. He's in Rome. He's up for trial soon. He's likely not going to make it out alive. Um, and from what we know from church history, after a few years of house arrest, he was, in fact, executed. So Paul senses that his time's coming to a close. And as he's, you know, thinking about his future, he's thinking less about himself and more about his, the churches he's planted. He's thinking less about him and his story and more about Christ and the story of Christ and the gospel. And so he decides to begin to write letters to churches and have those letters circulated in churches around the area. And one of such letters was this letter to the Ephesians. 
And he writes to the Ephesians so that the church would know what Paul is doing. So what's going on in Rome? What's the church like there? What's your missions like? What are your pastoral activities? And then how is he doing? How's your health? What's the legal status? How much longer are you going to be in prison? And he chooses Tychicus to deliver this letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, back in this day, Paul couldn't have just, you know, emailed uh, church at Ephesus.com, right? He couldn't even have, like, put the letter in an envelope, licked the stamp, and put it in the postal service. If you wanted to deliver a letter as just a regular old citizen back in this time, you either had to do it yourself or commission somebody, pay somebody, or ask somebody to deliver it for you. And the thing that I think we skip past is very obvious, and it's very important, is that Paul's letter to the Ephesians would never have gotten to the Ephesians. Not one word. And by extension, we might never have had the letter of Ephesians if it weren't for Tychicus performing what seems like a simple and small task, delivering a letter. You see, God has something for every single citizen of his kingdom. Anyone who calls Jesus, Lord. He has a purpose for them. For Tychicus, it was to support and spread the gospel through his good friend Paul. And in specific, and in this instance, it meant to deliver this letter from Rome to Ephesus. I mean, at face value, basically, Tychicus is acting as Paul's mailman. And we can ask ourselves, what do we think is the more important thing, that Paul wrote the letter to Ephesians or that Tychicus delivered the letter to Ephesus? And I think the obvious answer is, well, Paul writing it is the bigger, more important task. And that's true. But it doesn't mean Tychicus's task was small. And it certainly doesn't mean that his task was unimportant. It was simple. Take a letter from A to B. But we remember Paul's works while Tychicus is barely a footnote in history, we relegate him to the footnote because, you know, Paul is the one with the big task from God, the important task. Tychicus had the non-important, menial, mundane task. So what's the big deal with him? He just delivered a letter. He just had a small thing to do. You feel like Tychicus sometimes? Do you ever feel like Tychicus sometimes? You just play a small role in God's kingdom while great preachers and evangelists and ministries make the big splashes. I think that in our culture in specific, we're susceptible to feeling that what we as believers uh, do for the kingdom of God is almost inconsequential compared to what other people do. Uh, this, this guy's famous preaching ministry or this gal's missions ministry or whatever it is. And, and we uphold these people. We call them celebrity pastors. Uh, I, I think celebrity pastors are disappearing, and I am cheering that disappearance on. <laughs> I, I cannot wait for the day when there is no such thing as a celebrity pastor. Because um, I think we should return back to what the reformers called for. Uh, Martin Luther is famous for teaching his students of preaching uh, to preach the gospel faithfully, die, and be forgotten. Because it's not about you, right? It's about the gospel. John Calvin was so concerned that people were going to venerate him after his death that he only, he, he made his burial arrangements with very few people. And uh, today you can go to his burial site. There's a block of stone about like 
the size of this. And the only reason you know it's John Calvin's tomb or uh, resting place is because it's a J and a C inscribed. That's it. That's it. That's what we need. That's, the, that's what we need <laughs> to get back to, right? Um, but because we're not there yet and because we have this culture of celebrity, we feel like the celebrity pastors, the celebrity ministers, that's the important work in the kingdom of God. And what I do as Tychicus is deliver the mail. I don't have an important job. I'm just a student. I'm just a nurse. I'm just an administrative assistant. I'm just an engineer. I'm just a waiter or waitress. I just disciple one guy, one gal a week. I just care for an elderly family member. And it's full time. It takes so much work. I'd love to go on a mission trip, preach the gospel. I can't because I'm just doing this over here. I just care for the children in the children's ministry like twice a month. What did Tychicus, quote-unquote, just do when he delivered that letter? Think about that for a second. I, I want to ask the question kind of in the theological sense, what did he just do? But I also want to ask, like, literally, what did he do? Because we can look at both of those things and realize that even though it seems like a menial, mundane task, it took a lot of perseverance and trust for Tychicus to accomplish it. And even though it seems small... God used the letter of Ephesians for something really big. How did Tychicus perform this task? Literally, let's ask that question. Transportation back in ancient Rome was not easy. It was extremely expensive. I have a map here to show you kind of what we're dealing with. This is the Mediterranean world. And uh, most of the Roman Empire at the time is included in that map. And I'll put the locations of Rome and Ephesus for you to get kind of an idea of uh, where they are on the map. Um, Distance-wise, let's overlay the southeast United States so you can get an appreciation of that, of that gap distance. So uh, people are shocked when they see, like, wow, Europe's that small. Like it, it, if you've lived in the United States and you go to Europe, it, is, it feels a lot smaller. But... Essentially, to go from um, Rome to Ephesus as the crow flies, you're looking at about Dallas to Tallahassee. So a pretty big distance, but for us, we're like, that's a car trip, right? Well, Tychicus didn't have a car. <laughs> Back then, traveling by sea was the fastest, most effective way to travel. Um, at Stanford University, there's this system that's free to the public. You can go on it called Orbis, and uh, it, it shows you kind of like the cost analysis and time frame that it would have taken in this period of time to travel from point A to point B around the Roman Empire. Now, I don't know what group of nerds <laughs> decided on a weekend to crank that out, but I'm really appreciative of their work. <laughs> It's like uh, Google Maps for the first century, right? Um, so they calculated that by a ship, it would have cost, or it would have taken about 16 days, and it would have cost about 430 denarii. You're thinking to yourself, what's a denarii? One denarii, or one denarius, is one day's wage. So to take a 16-day boat ride from Rome to Ephesus would have cost you well over a year's worth of your salary. If you add on top of that the cost of food and lodging, this is a pretty expensive trip, right? It wasn't like Paul handed the letter 
to Tychicus and was like, oh, you're going to need uh, $70,000. <laughs> so Tychicus had to walk by foot the entire way. Well, almost the entire way, I think. Traveling by road was basically his only option. It was very slow, and it was very dangerous. Uh, wealthy people didn't travel on foot. They traveled with bodyguards and were towed by carriages. Merchants and traders, they kind of had a, a good deal going because they had to transport all their stuff with them, and so they got to sleep uh, with their stuff as well, and they had employees with them. Common people, like you and I, like Tychicus, they just had to hoof it. During the day, you were in danger because bandits plagued the Roman road system. They would hide behind rocks, and then the second you pass them, three of them would show up, like it's an apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic movie, right? We've seen those types of scenes. And they'd beat you up for your money or whatever is on you. <clears throat> That's why you'd need to hire a bodyguard, but Tychicus probably didn't have a bodyguard. Um, if you were fortunate enough to get to a town to stay at an inn, you probably wouldn't want to stay at the inn because those are really costly. They also have thieves in them, so they'd wait for you to go to sleep at night and then steal all your stuff. And there's a lot of reports in the ancient world that if you stayed at an inn and you slept in a bed or in bedding, guess what you're leaving the next morning with? An infestation of lice, right? So it's not like we think about a trip today. Like, I'll just stay at a Holiday Inn every, every night. Like, it's, that's not what's happening. Moreover, there's the distance and just the sheer physical cost, the endurance that was required for Tychicus to finish this travel. It would have, this, this uh, trip, it would have uh, taken him kind of three sections. Section number one would have been a 360-mile walk from Rome to the port city of Brindisium. So this is roughly the equivalent of walking from Mobile to Atlanta, Georgia. Any takers? Yeah. Then... From Brindisium, he would have had to take a ferry ship across the, uh, uh, across the Adriatic Sea there to a town called Apollonia. But the Adriatic Sea at that point in that, you know, part of the, the channel there or whatever, it's not known for its calm waters. So he would have had to have left during summer. If he got there during winter, guess what? He's waiting month after month after month before finally ship's captains are like, the waters are calm enough, we can go. Then once he got to Apollonia, he still had an 850-mile trek across modern Greece, which is not flat like Kansas, okay, through modern Turkey, and then finally to Ephesus. This is roughly the equivalent of walking from Mobile to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the longest I've ever hiked was 85 miles over the course of six days. And I was tired at the end of it. This trip would have taken Tychicus 90. 90 days walking in the hot sun, pouring rain, freezing nights. 90 days of hiking up mountains, trudging down muddy slopes. 90 days of trying and hoping to find food. 90 days of fending off bandits, thieves. 90 days of trying or of, of wondering what's going on at home, not being able to contact family and friends, 90 days of trying to ensure this letter you're carrying under your coat is protected from the elements, from theft. So now when we say Tychicus was Paul's mailman, it takes on a different light, doesn't it? That's quite the ask that Paul made of Tychicus. His task was still small, simple, 
it wasn't like he was writing an apostolic letter that would be inspired by the Holy Spirit and make it into scripture, right? But his task wasn't easy. It was still difficult. And his task wasn't unimportant. It was extremely important to God. He had a quote-unquote small task, which was simply transporting Paul's letter. But it was very difficult, and it had an incredible impact on the church. Not all of us are going to be Paul. Most of us are going to be Tychicus. 99.9% of us are called to be Tychicuses. Say that three times fast, right? Tychicuses. But the thing is this, Tychicus was immensely important, even if he didn't realize it at the time. Without Tychicus, we would not have had the letter of Ephesians and also the letter of Colossians. He also delivered Colossians. And without him, Paul's ministry would have been stifled. It would have been hindered. Do you sometimes feel like you have a quote-unquote small task in God's kingdom? That you just play a small part while there's great preachers, big evangelism ministries, blogs, whatever. They're the ones making the real splash. You're just a student. You're just a, a waiter. You're just discipling a person. You're just tending to an elderly family member. You're just volunteering in the children's ministry. Remember this. Even though, like Tychicus, you may be a passing name in a book, that doesn't mean you didn't do God's will. It doesn't mean you didn't impact his kingdom. And it doesn't mean you didn't bring his heart joy in your obedience to him. Think of all the times that Tychicus had to run from danger with this letter, hid away in a cave, gone maybe two, three days without food, the food that he did have with some bread and it's starting to mold. I mean, at what point would you have been like, I can't do this anymore? Maybe I can catch a ship back to Brindisi and, and go home and ask Paul if he'll get somebody else to do it. I'm done. What point do you think he got so frustrated? He's like, it's not worth it to continue on. For me, that would have been day two, <laughs> right? But here we know Tychicus completed this incredible trek and persevered. Not everyone is going to be Paul. Most of us are going to be Tychicus. But just because that's the case, it doesn't mean the task that he's given you is not unimportant, or is, is not important, and that it's not difficult. Tychicus could have given up. He didn't. And because he didn't, I mean, think about the impact that the letter of Ephesians has had on the kingdom of God. Uh, I love the letter of Ephesians. I've gone through and I've collected some of my favorite passages from Ephesians I want us to read so we can really think about those words that were tucked underneath Tychicus's cloak day and night for three months. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is one I'm about to read, the opening words of Ephesians 1, and I have an old Bible leaf that hangs in my office wall so I can read it and be reminded of it as often as possible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the ministry or mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are, or we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him, You have also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promises of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I read it quickly and fast like that because that's all one sentence in Greek. Paul cannot contain the richness of the gospel and the joy he's having writing it down to remind the church at Ephesus of who they are and whose they are. All the core elements of the gospel are here. Grace, faith, obedience, Christ's shed blood, future promises, God's election before the beginning of time, the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Everything about the gospel you can find right here in this one sentence. If you were to write that sentence in college, you would get in trouble, right? This is Paul. He can't get in trouble for doing stuff like that. And he's just so overtaken by joy and excitement of these theological truths that he doesn't stop to take time to add punctuation. He can't wait to get it out. Then there's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That rich reminder that we cannot do anything for our justification or right standing before God. We can't work for it. We can't achieve it. It's solely a gracious gift of God that we receive. And once we receive and open that gift, we are invited into a brand new life of doing the things that we were created to do, fulfilling our purpose to do good works that were, were ordained, Paul says, to do. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, another one of, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. A really good passage. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This tells us who we are and why we are, who we are. Uh, We're in a new family now as believers, and we're citizens in a new kingdom. When you become a believer, you get a new last name. You join a new family. You do things that new family's way. And when you become a believer, you get citizenship in a new kingdom, in a new nation, in a new country, under new laws, under new rules, in a new economy. And the great thing about this kingdom is it's never going away. It's the only kingdom that will outlast all other kingdoms. It's the only eternal kingdom. And we're citizens of that, Paul tells us. How do we know this? Paul says through the prophets, Old Testament, through the apostles, New Testament, 
with Christ himself being the cornerstone. You take Christ out, it all collapses. What is the Old Testament and the New Testament pointing to? Jesus. All that, just these two verses. Beautiful. Wouldn't have had them. Tychicus wasn't faithful. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, something we need reminded of as a church, especially in this divisive time. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The oneness of God is what we pursue. Another one of my absolutely favorite spots in the Bible is Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Paul is talking about marriage. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, and two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, giving his commentary, his Holy Spirit-inspired commentary. What does that passage mean in Genesis 2, 24? Paul tells you. This is a mystery, he says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That's awesome when you think about it, because what Paul is saying is, the marriage of Adam and Eve was proclaiming the gospel in the garden. So you ask, uh, you know, a seminary-trained theologian, what's the first time the gospel is preached in the Bible? They will say confidently, Genesis 3, 15, when Jesus is foreshadowed in God's promise to Eve that her seed will crush the head of the serpent. They call it the proto-euangelion. There's even a fancy word for it. Paul says, no, sir. No, sir. The first time the gospel is preached was when Adam and Eve laid eyes on each other and the two became one flesh. Their marriage was a proclamation of the gospel where Adam represents Christ and Eve represents the church. And you know why that's awesome? Because when did Adam and Eve get married? Before they sinned and fell or after? Before. The gospel is being proclaimed, Paul says, in Genesis chapter 2. We haven't gotten to the fall yet. What does that mean? God's plan of salvation by sending his son to die and rise again was never plan B. It was always plan A. God is sovereign. He's in control. God didn't look down in Genesis chapter 3 and go, ah, they sinned. Now what am I going to do? He knew it. And because he's gracious and merciful and good, he had been proclaiming to creation the very way in which he was going to redeem us through the simple institution of marriage. Paul reveals that to us, we wouldn't know it if it wasn't for Tychicus. And finally, we're all very familiar with Ephesians 6, the armor of God, as we fight in spiritual warfare with our belt of truth, righteousness, of, or armor of righteousness, our sandals, our shoes that bear readiness for the peace of the gospel, our sword of the spirit, our helmet of salvation. All of these things that we've just read, the entirety of the letter of Ephesians, come flooding into the church at Ephesus to encourage them. And then, as was a very common practice in the first century churches, they wouldn't just hold the letter to themselves. They would then copy it meticulously, and then they would send a runner to go to the church in the village over, and they would read it there. And that they would copy the letter, and they would read it to another church. And so within the weeks and months and years following Tychicus's initial delivery of the letter, now hundreds of churches in Asia Minor have been encouraged by these words. And then from there, the Holy Spirit guides these letters to become a part of our New Testament scripture. And through a long chain 
of faithfulness, we get to read it even through today. All because Tychicus was faithful in his small task. I mean, think about the impact that the letter has had on your own life in the history of the church. John Calvin said uh, Ephesians was his favorite book of the Bible. Uh, John Knox was a Presbyterian reformer. He loved it so much, he had the entire letter read on his deathbed. So the last words he heard were the ones that we're reading today. And who of us has not been stirred by the passages we've just read? Especially, but God. But God. The hinge on which the gospel swings. We were sinners, but God. You see, if there's one thing I want you to walk away from this morning and with this sermon, it's this. There are no small tasks in the kingdom of God. There are only tasks that bring God glory. There are no small tasks in the kingdom of God. No such thing. There are only tasks that bring God glory. Tychicus' task was not small. It was God-glorifying. Paul's task to write Ephesians wasn't big. It was God-glorifying. See, that's how the economy of God works. doesn't matter if you think you have a big responsibility or a small responsibility. doesn't matter if you think them and that ministry and that position is really important and what I'm doing here is not so important. God says, no, it's level because they all bring me glory. We don't just have something small to do in God's kingdom. Every task he gives us whether we think it's big or small, whether we think it's writing the book of Ephesians or delivering it, is immensely important to God. And knowing that reframes the way that we kind of think about ourselves in the story that God is telling throughout redemptive history. Like, who do you want to be? Sometimes we, we spin these fictions, I think, of trying to become the really important person as we see them. When God is saying, what you're doing is already important. I've given you a task. I've asked you to be a good steward of it. If I've given it to you, don't you think that's important? You remember the parable of the talents that Jesus told, how God gives us responsibilities? And some people get more talents, not as in like playing guitar or art or something like that, but a talent is in a, like money, basically. Some of us get some talents, one or two. Others of us get more talents, five or ten. But two things are common between those who receive small and those who receive much. The expectation that we would be good stewards of it and the reward at the end. The expectation is, if you have one talent and you have five talents, I want you to double them. So the one person who has a small task to be a good steward and double the talent to two, and the person that has a big task or important task to take the five talents and double them to ten. But the thing is, the person that had small amount and the person that had a big amount, at the end of the day, the parable informs us, the reward is equally the same. The reward is, is the exact same across the board. What does that communicate to us? But what we're seeing here... All tasks that God give us, gives us are important. And we have to understand that our role in the story is not to become some kind of important 
person in some kind of fiction that we're spinning, but to be content and to be good stewards as small characters that he's called us to be, to be Tychicus. It's infinitely better to have a small role in God's grand narrative than to cast yourself as the main character in your own small fiction. Okay? It's infinitely better to have a small role in God's grand narrative than to cast yourself as the main role in your own small fiction. It's infinitely better to have a supporting role in God's big Broadway production than to be the lead actor or lead actress in your own small sketch that only your friends are going to show up to because they feel bad. Right? So if you've ever been in theater or drama, you know what I'm talking about. It's infinitely better to be a part of God's grand choir, one member among many, than it is to be your own one-man band. And it's infinitely better to be faithful with the small things of God because in the economy of God's kingdom, more often than not, small things count as big things. See, we, we think... God's economy works different than ours, right? We'll, we'll see a task, a ministry, or whatever, and we'll be, man, that's really big. That must be having a really big impact on the kingdom, right? And God says, eh. But do you see this widow over here who's faithfully discipling these five women at her church? These five women at the church are going to have sons and daughters, who are going to start some kind of missionary program you've never heard of and convert thousands in a part of the world you've never known. And we'll never know until we get to the other side of glory. So don't ever feel like God gives you a small task because there's no such thing. He only gives you God-glorifying tasks. So when you study more about God and his creation, when you work within the realm of his creation and you're doing it well and to his glory, you're honoring him. When you work not for people but for the Lord, you're glorifying him. When you just disciple one guy or one gal a week, you are causing heaven to erupt and cheer. When you just care for an elderly family member, you're bearing witness to the selfless love that Christ has for his people. And when you just care for children in children's ministry, you're displaying the Father's heart and a smile races across his face. Here's the question we have to ask then. Are we faithful with the small things? Or when we're given small things, are we less faithful with it because we don't think it's going to have that big of an impact? Do we comprehend the potential magnitude that our faithfulness today in small things will have tomorrow? The bottom line is, whatever we're given by God, he gives it to us so that he might be glorified and asks us to be good stewards and faithful in it. So how are we motivated to persevere in the small things that God gives us? I think the answer is tucked away in the very last two verses of Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and love with, the, well, love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Another translation calls it undying love. That's the motivation. There it is, love incorruptible, a gracious love, an undying love. How often can we imagine Tychicus 
decided not to take another step today, but the motivation of God's love for him pressed him forward, that at every step, <laughs> he's, he's cold, it's soaking wet, it's not stopped raining for three or four days, he's hungry, chilled to the bone, trying to protect this very fragile document. He thinks to himself, why should I go on with this small task? It's because of the big task that Christ did for him and the love that motivated him, I believe, is what caused him to persevere. And it's what causes us to persevere. So that when you feel like you're doing a menial task for the kingdom and you're questioning, why am I even going on with this? It's because Christ did a very big thing for us. And he's inviting us to participate in the kind of perseverance that only divine love can give and bring him glory. Undying love does not look for value in an action or in a position. It looks for value in obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. Undying love, incorruptible love, motivates us and all that God gives us because we're his worksmanship for, for good works, Paul says. From everywhere from cleaning up your neighbor's yard after a hurricane, to preaching sermons on Sunday, to talking about Jesus with your neighbor, to talking about Jesus with people from remote tribes and faraway lands. It matters less what God has tasked you to do. It matters more that we recognize love is motivating us to be good stewards of this task to the glory of his name. That's what we see with Tychicus. That's what I hope we would be as a church. I really hope that one of the legacies of Mars Hill is that we would be a church full of Tychicuses. Tychicuses, that was right. That we're not spinning these fictions to become the next giant megachurch or have the mega popular blog or the sermon series everybody has to download and listen to or whatever, right? I want us to all be a bunch of Tychicuses. And then one day when Mars Hill closes its door, the church is forgotten, but the gospel's not. And the impact and the crater that we left in our community and the lives within our influence has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ. And that everything we do as a church would glorify Christ because if we strive to be a Tychicus, the things we're striving for is anonymity, perseverance, faithfulness, a true understanding of selfless love support of the things that God is doing in this world. People on earth don't know who Tychicus is, but you know where his name is known? In heaven and in the kingdom of God, because that's where everything is made known to its fullest extent. And I, I, can't, I can imagine the scene when he finally got to heaven, and <laughs> God's like, I want to show you what I'm going to do with the faithfulness of that small task that you just completed and ran him through the history and the church at Ephesus first read it to the time Christ comes again and said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. Let's be a church of Tychicuses. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that all scripture is inspired by your Holy Spirit. Even the parts where we would think should probably skip it. It's amazing to see in your servant and our brother Tychicus the perseverance 
with the small, seemingly insignificant task of delivering the mail and what that has led to. Father, we thank you for his example of perseverance. Pray that we might follow it ourselves, not so that we may strive towards salvation, but that we we may work out of it. Not that some kind of fear for judgment in exchange for forgiveness would come by our faithfulness to you, but that because we have been forgiven and because we have been loved with an incorruptible, undying love, that we would seek to glorify you. Father, if there's anybody in the sound of my voice that has been wrestling with tasks that you have given me, them, why am I doing this? Why should I keep doing this? I pray that you would encourage them. Let them know that their task may seem small to the world, but it's big to heaven. And that there are no small tasks in the kingdom of God. There are only tasks that bring you glory. So Father, not by our own power, but by the power of the Spirit, may we be faithful to be good stewards of everything that you call us to as a church. So that your name would be glorified, your heart would be blessed and filled with joy. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.